This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight, for our 183rd episode, we discuss the gangster thriller Key Largo from 1948, celebrating its 75th anniversary later this year. Written and directed by John Huston, co-written by Richard Brooks, music by Max Steiner, starring Humphrey Bogart as Major Frank McLeod, Edward G. Robinson as Johnny Rocco slash Howard Brown, Lauren Bacall as Nora Temple, Lionel Barrymore as James Temple, Claire Trevor as Gay Dawn, Thomas Gomez as Richard Curley Hoff, Harry Lewis as Edward Toots Bass, John Rodney as Deputy Sheriff Clyde Sawyer, Mark Lawrence as Ziggy, Dan Seymour as Angel Garcia, Monty Blue as Sheriff Ben Wade, and William Hodd as Ralph Feeney. Recognition for this movie? Key Largo was released on July 16, 1948. On a rough budget of $1.8 million, it is estimated to have grossed over $4.4 million worldwide, and it was the number three grossing movie of 1948 behind only... Do you want to take a guess? Yes, uh, it was behind Red River, and uh, I, knew, I looked this up, and I can't remember the name of the film because I'd never even heard of it. I hadn't either, but this is the second time it's come up because we discussed, obviously, two other movies this year from 1948, or this season... From 1948. And I can't remember. The Snake Pit. Yes. I have no idea who made that or what it's about or who's in it. But it finished number one that year. Olivia de Havilland's in it. That much I do know. Because I did look it up. Key Largo was the fourth and final film pairing of actors Bogart and Bacall after To Have and Have Not from 1944, Big Sleep from 1946, and Dark Passage from 1947. The film was awarded one Academy Award for... Best Supporting Actress. Yes, for Claire Trevor. It was also nominated by the WGA for Best Written American Drama and for AFI's Top 10 Gangster Films list. Key Largo currently holds a 97% among critics on Rotten Tomatoes and a 3.8 out of 5 on Letterboxd. However, for whatever reason, it does not have a Metacritic score, which is like the first time I've ever seen that. So, Dad, as we start every week, what is your relationship to this movie? About uh, four years ago, I think, I was trying to go through the Humphrey Bogart catalog, trying to figure out which Bogart films I had not seen. And I'm like, this is one I've always wanted to see. I mean, John Huston directed... It's well-known. It's in a song from the 80s, talking about Bogey and Bacall and Key Largo and such. And so I thought, all right, it was available on streaming, and so your mom and I watched it, and I really enjoyed the film. So this is the second time I've been able to watch it straight through. I think I only saw it a couple of years ago. I think, like you, it was one that I was just drawn to because of who made it and who was in it. And I remember enjoying it the first time around. I actually enjoyed it a little bit more this rewatch, my second time through. But 
it's kind of one of these, I mean, I hate to put it in a popcorn flick category, but it is kind of like that. It's like a 1948 version of a popcorn flick. I don't think there's a lot hard hitting in this movie compared to John Huston's other, what I think is his masterpiece of the same year, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre that we discussed earlier on the show this season. But I do think that it is entertaining and has big names attached to it. So I think that carries it a little bit more than some other films of the era. I think this is a film that you can just put on once you've seen it once or twice and not pay a lot of attention to it and just look up and watch bits and pieces of it and still enjoy the film. Kind of a background movie type. Yes. It's not overhit or hard hitting. It's one, you know, because sometimes, especially on a Friday night, I have a little problem. It's been a stressful week and I don't really want anything heavy, even though this is a drama uh, and a noir. It's not that heavy. So it's something you could put on and not feel overwhelmed emotionally. I think that's fair. So then what is this movie about? It's a film noir, that's that's clear. And it's supposed to show the darker side of things, which is crime and such. But actually, it dawned on me in watching it and watching Edward G. Robinson's performance, there's a psychological component to this, which is that Rocco's character is terrified whenever he is in a situation where he can't control it. He becomes just a shell of a man who is petrified and quaking and is lashing out. And so it's somewhat kind of an almost an expose as to how these guys become gang leaders is they end up realizing that they have such inferiorities that they end up becoming these tough uh, leaders in order to overcome their own insecurities. I know I just got done saying that there's not really a deeper meaning to this movie. And I think this is maybe me reading into it a little bit more than I probably should. But there's a particular line that I found that I guess I didn't realize when watching the film was actually a pulled quote from a state of the union. Yes. It's McLeod saying, but we aren't making all this sacrifice of human effort and lives to return to the kind of a world we had after the last world war. We're fighting to cleanse the world of ancient evils and ancient ills. And I do think that this is only a couple of years removed from the war. We know that Houston obviously was a veteran of sorts. He made documentary films about the war. And so he was clearly affected by it. I wonder if this is somewhat of a sneaky film against the evils of fascism, even though they had supposedly overcome it. He still didn't want to slip into the ills that fascism could be seen in all sorts of places where people with power bully other innocent bystanders and you can't sit by and idly watch while it happens. You have to take matters into your own hands. I don't think it's fascism that he's talking about. I think it's the Red Scare and what's going to become McCarthyism because Houston was a huge opponent of McCarthy and McCarthyism and the blacklists. And I think that's part of this, which is that you can bully people around 
by just using raw power, but ultimately you have to take a stand against it. And I think that that might be a part of the real rationale behind the film itself. So with the exception of obviously Casablanca, which I would propose is obviously Humphrey Bogart's most recognized film, every other major film of his that I can think of is a John Huston film. You have The Maltese Falcon, you have The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, you have this. I think Houston directed The African Queen, if I remember right. He did. I guess the only other exception might be Kane Mutiny, because I don't believe Houston was a part of that. He was not. And I can't remember offhand who directed it. But Asphalt Jungle, I think The Big Sleep as well, are all Houston movies. Why did they work so well together? They knew each other very well. In somewhat, they were kindred spirits. I mean, I always remember a piece I read. It was an excerpt from Catherine Hepburn's book when they were talking about filming The African Queen. After they were done with the shoot, Hemingway was along doing script writing for The African Queen. And so Houston, Bogart, and Hemingway would go down, sit around a fire, and drink until they were so drunk they would get up and just start beating each other senseless. And they'd get bloody. They'd have to have crew come out, help them back to their tents, clean them up, fix their cuts and bruises. And in the morning they'd get up, they'd have a cup of coffee, and they were ready to go, and they were the best of friends again. And that was every night. I mean, there is something to be said for knowing you work well with someone and just over and over again choosing to work with those people. I mean, you don't see it quite as much with modern directors, but Christopher Nolan has worked with Michael Caine like nine times at this point, and Martin Scorsese has worked with De Niro like six or seven, maybe eight times. He's worked with DiCaprio at least a handful of times. Certain directors, especially the like more prominent you are, usually end up choosing to work with specific lead actors. I mean, Hitchcock did that as well. Yes. Damien Giselle is how many films has um, J.K. Simmons been in of Giselle's? Two or three, at least. I think he was only in Whiplash. And I mean, well, if you count the original Whiplash short, then it's more than the two. Because I also don't remember, I think he was in Babylon for a very small portion. And he was, he had a, a scene where he was the manager of the restaurant or of the music hall in uh, La La Land. No, he was not in La La Land. Yes, he was. He's not in La La Land. Okay. All right, fine. We'll look it up. He was not in First Man. He's listed as Bill in La La Land. Yeah. He managed the club that um, Gosling played in. Okay. Well, I mean, if we're taking it on that level, Gosling's been in two of his movies. True. So, I mean, there is that. But even so, I mean, is it just simply a comfort level or is there something more in the pairing between the two of them that got the best out of both of them? You know, there's a reason why they say that couples after so many years start to look like each other. It's You start adapting. You don't look anything like mom. Okay, but there's an old saying about that. And what it is is you start adapting each other's mannerisms and some of their sayings and such. 
certain actors and actresses and directors have such a rapport, they know exactly what the uh, what the other wants and what the other needs. And so you just can, you don't need to spend a lot of time. It It's kind of like short circuits a lot of the the directing that's necessary in a film. You just have a feel for what each other needs and wants. Well, are you ready to dig more into this movie? Do you have a plot summary ready for us? I do. Key Largo, directed by the legendary John Huston, is a taut and atmospheric crime thriller that takes place in the aftermath of World War II, set against the backdrop of a hurricane on the eponymous island. This film weaves together elements of suspense, moral dilemma, and simmering tensions to create a compelling cinematic experience. The story follows Frank McLeod, Humphrey Bogart, a disillusioned war veteran who arrives at a rundown hotel in Key Largo to pay his respects to the family of a fallen comrade. The hotel is run by the widowed Nora Temple, Lauren Bacall, and her father-in-law, James Temple, Lionel Barrymore, who is struggling to maintain the business. As Frank becomes acquainted with the Temples, he quickly realizes that something is amiss. The plot thickens when a group of shady characters arrives at the hotel, led by the enigmatic Johnny Rocco, Edward G. Robinson, a notorious gangster on the run. Tensions rise as the hurricane intensifies outside, trapping everyone inside the hotel. Frank finds himself caught in a dangerous web of circumstances, forced to confront his own past and make difficult choices. Key Largo stands as a testament to the timeless appeal of film noir and the enduring talents of its cast and crew. It's a suspenseful and thought-provoking classic that showcases the depths of human character when faced with dire circumstances. As the hurricane rages outside and the tensions escalate within the hotel, Key Largo is a film that keeps viewers on the edge of their seats until the very end, ultimately leaving them with much to ponder about the choices people make when confronted with the darkness within and without. Thank you. Did you know? Although they played on-screen enemies, off-screen Humphrey Bogart and Edward G. Robinson treated each other with great respect. Bogart insisted Robinson be treated like a major star, and he would not come to the set until Robinson was ready. Often he would go to Robinson's trailer to personally escort him to the set. Did you know? In a classic case of a director being emotionally manipulative, John Huston did not inform Claire Trevor about when she was to perform her song solo until the very day it was shot. Trevor was not a trained singer, and she had not even rehearsed the song yet. She also felt very intimidated that she had to perform the song for the A-list actors seated directly in front of her. The result was a hesitant, nervous, uncomfortable rendition, exactly the feeling Houston was hoping to get. Did you know? Apart from the opening shots, the movie was filmed entirely at Warner Brothers Studio. Studio head Jack L. Warner was still reeling from the on-location cost of shooting John Huston's previous film, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, from 1948. Warner refused to approve any more location filming for the director. The pier scenes were filmed using the studio tank, with miniature boats in the background to give an illusion of depth. The shipboard shots at the end were also filmed using the studio tank, 
with fog used to mask the artifice. Did you know? Santana was the name of Humphrey Bogart's yacht, which he purchased from June Allison and Dick Powell. Before that, it had belonged to George Raft and Ray Milan. He loved the Santana so much he named his production company after it. Did you know? In honor of this film, the real Key Largo hosts a Humphrey Bogart film festival every year. And with that, we'll take our first break, and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week for our 184th episode, we discuss the sci-fi thriller Gravity from 2013, celebrating its 10th anniversary. Directed and written by Alfonso Cuaron, co-written with Jonas Cuaron, music by Stephen Price, starring Sandra Bullock and George Clooney. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. All right, Dad, we're on to best performance. Who do you have down? Edward G. Robinson. Interesting. Going a little bit off the beaten path here, but sure. Yes, because I thought Robinson's portrayal of of Rocco, where he's going constantly between, being, you know, as I indicated, during the storm, and then on the ship, he's not in control, and he becomes such a little person. He, his idiot or his uh, insecurities pop through, and his anxieties come out. And then he'll turn around and by using just sheer violence and brute force, overcome his fears and anxieties. I thought he had a a large part with a wide range of emotions to convey for what could have been a very two-dimensional character or even one-dimensional character. So I found this category particularly difficult to choose from, partially because by process of elimination, more than anything for me, I ended up at John Huston somewhat by default. Like, I don't think that this is Bogart's best movie by any stretch. I'm not no. even sure it's in his top five as far as acting mm-hmm. performances. I didn't think that Bacall was given a whole lot to do in the movie. She was given a little bit where they focused on her, but it was in kind of silent moments. So I didn't really feel that was warranted or deserved. And for me, having seen some of the older Edward G. Robinson gangster movies, he kind of plays the exact character type that he did before. So I felt it was kind of wooden and hollow for me. But that's just maybe a a sense of opinion. I ended up in Houston just because he's pulling double duty again as the writer-director and for being a rather entertaining film that maybe you could give a little bit more analysis to, that it might have a little bit deeper meaning, that given all the restrictions that were put on him that this had to be financially successful, which it was, and it had to be his second one in the same calendar year, which was kind of unheard of at the time, and that it had to be shot on set or in the uh, lot. And I think he had a lot of restrictions going against him for this movie and for it to be as successful as it was at the time. I think it was a pretty good accomplishment. Okay. Who did you have for secondary? Best secondary. I went with the obvious choice and Bogart. I mean, I don't think he's particularly special comparative to other movies, but you still get, you know, at least a above replacement level performance out of Bogart for me. 
And that's good enough, I guess, to be best secondary in this movie, because I didn't think the music was all that strong for Max Steiner. I didn't think the writing was all that strong to nominate Houston again or Richard Brooks. And I have somebody else for most charismatic that I think at least I'd like to recognize given his range. So I went with Bogart here again, somewhat by default. I'm going to go outside the box again. Lionel Barrymore. Okay, so you went with my most charismatic. I think Lionel Barrymore kind of made this film to some extent because I think he's the cantankerous guy that a lot of the public feels like when they're, you know, you feel outrage and you feel anger towards organized crime. And I think he was the voice of the average person in this film expressing their anger and irritation and being powerless to do anything about it. I mean, every time I see Lionel Barrymore, I realize what a great actor he really was. Really liked his performance in this, and it spoke to me, so I thought I would put him in for secondary. I put him as most charismatic because it's noticeable anytime he's in a movie. I don't know of too many other actors that are that notable for being in a wheelchair not just because that's your acting style, but because you were physically incapable of doing anything else. And yet having such a wide range of different roles from Grand Hotel to uh, You Can't Take It With You to It's a Wonderful Life to this. Every time you see him, he has a slightly different variation of who he is. You recognize that it's him and it's clearly his persona, his his charisma jumping off the screen. But at the same time, he's got a lot of range, and I think he's a very, very good, maybe unheralded character actor. Correct. And he was in the wheelchair because it's it's somewhat unknown exactly what happened. Some people said it was rheumatoid arthritis. Some people have said that it was a spinal cord injury. He was in extreme pain. He could stand and walk, but to do so caused such agony that he just ended up being in a wheelchair for most of the time. But yeah, I think he's an excellent uh, actor. As far as charismatic, I'm going to go with Bogey simply because of this. If ever there was the epitome of what is a movie star, even when he isn't acting well or needing to do much, he's just so awesome. Every time he would be on screen, you're just drawn to him. I don't know how somebody can have that much charisma that shows up in a camera, but he managed to. And he always, in every film I've ever seen him in, you're drawn to him. I don't know if I would go with him as like the number one example of a movie star. I think even contemporaries of his, I would maybe put over him, but I understand the point. Well, Cary Grant would probably be in that category. Yeah, that was exactly who my mind went to. Maybe we should do that show sometime is rank our 10 greatest actors and actresses being a movie star, not necessarily an actor or actress. Yeah, I can do that. Okay. We could possibly move some stuff around in the next year's schedule. I think I had one date left open for like a list episode because we haven't done one in quite a while. I have some other ideas on that too, so we'll talk about it. All right, let's move to best scene. I only have five down. Like, I I know this is mostly a verbal movie, even though I 
claimed it was kind of a popcorn flick. But there's really only five that kind of stand out as their own scene. Otherwise, it just feels kind of filler between these five moments for me. So I have horse racing, which is the early scene in the movie where he first arrives and meets Gay. I have false duel, which is when Sawyer gets shot and the gun with no bullets in it. I have karaoke. I have Sheriff Wade returns. So he finds the Osceola boys. And then the final shootout on the boat. Did you have anything that you felt I missed? Well, it depends on, I mean, the whole thing of the storm hitting and Rocco's meltdown in the lobby. How do you have that packaged into this? I'm not sure I really did. I suppose I could add that because it doesn't really fit in neatly with about the point where Sheriff Wade returns. Yeah. So that's that's my best scene and my most indelible moment because Rocco's behavior in that scene to me says a lot about the character or in why it was taking place. And it's right down to the fact, you know, he's on the phone talking to uh, Ziggy or Iggy? Ziggy. Ziggy. That whole thing, trying to maintain control, but at the same time, he's terrified of the storm. And you said that was also your most indelible moment? Correct. If I have to pick a best scene, I would probably go false duel. I think that that showdown between Bogart and Robinson is the price of admission. And to have them quite literally pointing guns at each other, I think other than the gunfight at the end, probably the investment or the emotional investment you have in the movie, thinking these two are going to go at it mano a mano. So I would probably put that out as, as the best because I think that carries with it, other than the ending, the most emotional weight for me. It was where I was the most invested. I have that as my favorite scene, simply because I think, again, it showed the nature of the characters and really kind of laid out what the film's about. And it wasn't that Bogart was afraid. His character wasn't necessarily afraid. His his character more or less was choosing where to fight and when to fight. Yeah, he's very careful about that. And I also had that as my favorite scene. But that leads me into the point where that I would make about the most indelible moment, and that'd be the final shootout. I think him choosing to get on the boat where you're kind of questioning the character's logic in getting on the boat in the first place until you realize he's waited for the exact right moment to strike and that he's lied in wait just for that opportunity or the golden opportunity to make amends for everything and end the threat more or less. I think to me, that's what the movie is ultimately about with any good thriller. You're going to have twists and turns, but the ending's got to land. And at least for me, I thought the ending landed. Well, I tried to go back and think about what was the part of the movie when I was watching it again, that I remembered the most. And the one I remember the, the two scenes I remembered the most were the opening and then the, uh, the actual storm itself. But the ending itself, it, it wasn't as memorable to me because I actually had to stop and rewatch the film to remember the sequence of events of how it took place. I knew ultimately how it ended, but I couldn't remember exactly where it ended and how everything took place until I watched it again. So to me, that meant that the, the two other scenes were more memorable to me 
So that's why I didn't go with the ending. It it made sense what you said, but I just, for me, don't agree. All right. That looks like a good spot for our second break, and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, releasing in the early part of this October, friend of the show Adam Hitchcock of the Streaming Circuit Podcast and I are back with our special monthly series on the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where we will be discussing each film from the original Iron Man up through Avengers Endgame. The first half of each show will be on his feed, and the second half we will apply the Stan Lee rubric to each film to determine the greatest Marvel film of all time. This month we're covering the Avengers from 2012. Don't miss out. Make sure you are subscribed to both feeds to get these episodes. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Well, I thought we were not going to, and then right about the time we were preparing, David McCallum, a 90s Scottish actor, man from UNCLE, NCIS and The Great Escape passed away. Three-time Emmy Award nominee. I was not a viewer of the original The Man from UNCLE or the TV movie that was made in the 80s. I was not a watcher of NCIS, so my really only connection to him was The Great Escape. But I think he's fantastic in that film. He is. He was a very underrated actor. It took reminding me that he was on NCIS because I'm not an NCIS watcher. Uh, I've seen a few episodes here and there, and I remember seeing him on there and thinking, oh, this is what he's doing now. But um, longtime uh, actor who's always been, was always very good. He had a great rapport with Man from Man from Uncle. He was in uh, 12 Angry Men, Robert Vaughn. Had a great rapport with Robert Vaughn on that show. It was a show that I kind of watched when I was a very small kid. Um, I think it was over by about the time I was about uh, first grade. Robert Vaughn was not in 12 Angry Men. He was in The Magnificent Seven. Oh, yeah, I guess he wasn't, was he? But either way, like... Yes, he was. He was not in there. Oh, no, that was E.G. Marshall. Okay. I know everybody in 12 Angry Men. I've probably seen the film like 60 times. Okay. But anyway, had you not like made the connection that he passed with NCIS and The Great Escape, I would have had no, no idea that it was the same actor because he looks so vastly different in his older age from like the youthful, exuberant Great Escape <laughs> David McCallum. Well, I've been looking at some photos of myself from 30 years ago, and I can understand why. Fair enough. At least uh, you haven't continued to make the same mistake of the mustache. That was more than 30 years ago. Fair, but also, you, you look like a stalker. Anyway. <laughs> an odd transition to honor Mr. McCallum here, but we honor him with a moment of silence in his honor. Thank you. Let's move to best lines. I only have three down, and I already gave you one of them with the uh, repeat from the quoted, or the quote from the 1942 State of the Union by FDR. So first one up for me. You don't like it, do you, Rocco? The storm? Show it your gun. Why don't you? If it doesn't stop, shoot it. Frank McCloud. One Rocco more or less isn't worth dying for. I guess this will be my last one already. When your head says one thing and your whole life says another, your head always loses. Uh, Johnny Rocco. 
After living in the U.S. for more than 35 years, they call me an undesirable alien. Me, Johnny Rocco. Like I was a dirty red or something. Do you have any left? Uh, yes, Johnny Rocco. I'd be pulling strings to get guys elected mayor before you ever got a 10-buck raise. Yeah, how many of those guys in office owe everything to me? I made them. Yeah, I made them. Just like a, like a tailor makes a suit of clothes. I'd take a nobody, see? Teach him what to say. Get his name in the papers. Then I'd pay for his campaign expenses. Dish out a lot of groceries and coal. Get my boys to bring the voters out. And then count the votes over and over again until they added up right. And he was elected. That's it. All right. Let's move to the Stanley rubric then. Legacy is up first. Do you want to go first or second? Uh, it will pain me, but I'll go first. Okay. This does not have a large rec or following. It's not highly regarded by critics. It's kind of a forgotten film among critics in the Academy. It's not, uh, it's listed as one of the better films, gangster films, but other than that, it's not in anybody's top lists of anything. So the industry, I gave it a two simply because it had some recognition yet in the industry, uh, especially given Bogart and Bacall and Robinson. For the public, I I would have about seven or eight years ago said it's maybe a one, if even that, because no one had talked about it or saw it. But since it's been in streaming, I've noticed that there's been talk that it's kind of increased a bit. People are going back and finding it. I saw a bit about that, about the number of uh, streams and then how many purchases in Blu-ray. So I went up a half a point. So I went with a 1.5 for a three-point overall. 3.5 overall, excuse me. I don't see this film often in streaming, so I'm kind of curious where you would have gotten that from. But I also ended at a 1.5 on the audience side of it because, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a relatively forgotten film. but. My argument for keeping it even at the 1.5 that I had or the three that I have for the industry is the names connected with it and the people that are involved. Edward G. Robinson is a recognizable character actor of sorts. Lionel Barrymore, to a certain degree, the same thing if you've watched old classic movies. You have Bogart and Bacall, which obviously that pairing has extra meaning for anybody that's a historian or just a lover of old classic cinema. And you have Bogart and Houston, which is a huge pairing. Now, I've already said, I don't think this is anywhere near the lengths or the value of the other 1948 film that we discussed. That's much, probably going to be much higher on our list with The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, which I think is a masterpiece. This is a little bit more run of the mill, if you ask me. But because of all those people connected, I ended at a 3 and a 1.5 for a 4.5 overall. So that would mean we're at a 3 combined between us for the average. No. Or 3.5, excuse me. You're at 4.5. Oh, right. I'm at 3.5. We're at you're right. So I finally helped with the math? Yes, I think you did. Wow. So yes, that is a 4 average between the two of us. Impact and Significance. I don't think this was an industry favorite. I really couldn't find any critic reviews. It seems to have been just kind of generally passed over. It got next to no awards attention in an era where there were like 10 films made a year. 
So, I mean, for it to get very little, if anything, from a year where like there were two John Houston films and the other one got seriously rewarded and this one just kind of got overlooked. I only gave it a 3.5, but on the audience side of things, they came out and they saw this film. It did well. It made back its money and then some, it was a fairly successful film for that year. So I ended up going with a 4.5. So that's an eight for me. I agree with you on the public 4.5 because it was the third highest grossing film of the year. I think it doesn't get a full five because normally that kind of number I would say should be closer to the five category, but it doesn't quite because, you know, the impact and significance the first few years, I think it kind of probably fell off pretty quickly because it's kind of, it can be a forgettable film if you want it to be. And as far as the industry, this kind of paled in comparison to everything else and the lack of any nomination other than best supporting actor by the Academy actress, actress, excuse me. And I had a very difficult time even finding reviews that were contemporaneous. I even made a search for them and couldn't find too much. So this kind of flew under the radar. So I'm going to go with a a three for the industry for a 7.54 overall. So that's a 7.75 average between the two of us. Novelty, like I said before, Edward G. Robinson is playing a gangster. We'd seen that at least a good handful of times before that, most notably in Little Caesar and I think Scarface, the original, not the Tony Montana edition. Yes. This was based on a play, multiple well-known stars, and it felt like a very conservative, down-the-middle action film, popcorn flick of the time that was trying to capitalize or maximize, you know, its its general stars. To me, this would have been like a Mission Impossible movie back in the day. This is what that was in 1948. So I rarely go this low, but I went with a three. Ooh, I gave it a higher number. Yes, it's a gangster film, but it did draw the ramifications of of the victims. It did it in a way that showed more the impact of the gangster on the, the victims and those around them than what a traditional gangster film did. It highlighted more the people being held captive than it did the gangsters at times. It showed a more human side and the psychological the psychology to Rocco. So I thought that was somewhat innovative in that regard. So I went with a higher number than that. I went with a 6.5. See, and I'm not sure I would necessarily agree because you had other films like White Heat or Public Enemy that I thought did just as good a job at highlighting those certain parts and hitting many of the same notes. So to me, this was kind of run of the mill, but that's fine. So that's a 4.75 average between the two of us. Classicness, go ahead. This had strong women who ultimately steered the ship. Even the uh, the alcoholic girlfriend ended up stealing the gun and allowing McLeod to escape. The fact that McCall stood up to Robinson in a couple of different scenes was good. The violence was not overly outrageous or gratuitous while the, it was always or even the points where there was manhandling of the women 
it came with repercussions. So I went with an 8.5 because I didn't see a lot that I found horrible. The worst I had was that there was some stereotyping of the Native Americans and the Seminole Nation. But even that, the line that the more we try to help these people, the worse it seems to get, was an acknowledgement that really we're not doing very well for the Native Americans. I mean, I focused on that a little bit. Because at the time, even the mention of it usually had poor connotations in mind. But I thought this actually was a little bit ahead of its time and how it treated them. So I'm not really going to downplay that too much. I still think it's a little bit heavy handed for the time. But okay, I can still make peace with it. The problem that I had with the film is I went in the opposite direction. I think you too often are willing to say that there are strong female leads in just about every movie we do, and it becomes too often the go-to thing that you do. I think the women in here were disposable. I thought that they were sidekicks, if anything else. They were there to bring out the heroism of the men or the villainy of the men, and they were there to really only serve those characters. I don't find either of the women to be particularly strong at all in this film, And so, if anything, I went down a point for that to a six. Okay. So that's a 7.25 average between the two of us. Rewatchability. I enjoyed the film, but it's not one that I would really think to put on on my own if I didn't have a purpose for watching it. And it's not one that I'm really all that interested in sitting all the way through every time. I mean, it's not horrible or anything, but it's not one that I'm going to easily say, oh yeah, let's fire up Key Largo. So I'm at a four. Okay, I'm at a position right now where I would say that this is a film I could put on usually when it's I want to watch something and or we can't agree on something and just put this in because I think it's it's great background. I went higher than you. I went with a 7.5. So that's a 5.75 average between the two of us. For audience score, we had an 80% for Google users and an 88% for Rotten Tomato users, giving us a final total of 8.4. So to repeat the categories, we had a 4 for Legacy. We had a 7.75 for Impact and Significance. We had a 4.75 for Novelty, a 7.25 for Classicness, and a 5.75 for Rewatchability and an audience score of 8.4, giving us a final total of... 37.9, and currently placing it on our list between Bronson and Idiocracy. Okay. If you disagree with our score, you can write us at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. You can find our master list with all the greatest movies of all time scores on RonnieDuncanStudios.com backslash Gmote Podcast, or you can write to us at Gmote Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, or TikTok. I guess it's X now. I, I probably should take the Twitter out, but it's just so ingrained in me. Anyway, remaining questions. Don't hurricanes normally last a lot longer than a few hours? Well, it depends. It depends on where or what portion of the hurricane hit and where. And it also depends on if somebody's 
using a map to draw lines shifting the direction of the hurricane. Oh, yeah. But if you're going to shoot at the hurricane, you should probably shoot a nuke at it. Yes. Because that will dissipate it. Yes. In fact, I think that would be the next Sharknado. Yeah. Is nuke cane Yeah. If Sawyer recognized Rocco, like, immediately, why doesn't Sheriff Wade? Well, he did recognize him. He just didn't place him. And because people pay attention to different things. I mean, you know, Rock, or Sawyer was of a different age. He probably spent more time paying attention to what was taking place in the newspapers. It could have been Rocco was a big person while Sawyer was in the academy, so he's paying more attention to the big crimes, whereas the sheriff is trying to maintain what's going on on Key Largo and really isn't going to spend as much time worrying about organized crime up in the upper portion of the country. So it doesn't surprise me. Do you have any remaining questions? No, I don't have any remaining questions. Okay, I have one more then. Does Frank stay with the temples after this incident? I mean, they're obviously relieved. I think you can clearly see Bacall is like fawning after Bogart the entire movie. <laughs> yes. Like smitten. It doesn't even begin to describe it in a way. But, you know, does he stick around and like basically create a new family in the place of his fallen junior? Like, what would you call your, I, I don't want to say inferior, but subordinate in the army? That seemed a little odd. Uh, not as odd as you'd think. It was not uncommon, especially in things like the Civil War, where there were lots of widows around and such, and it's not that odd. So I think it's clearly he does, because he's he's already, you know, he's got a boat, or knowledge of boats and the sea. He's not tied down. It's obvious they want him there. It's the place that he's been looking for, and never could find. Okay, let's move to final thoughts for the week. I think I had promised last week that we would talk a little bit about past lives, but I think we also have to at least discuss generally, I don't know if you've read the terms of what happened, but the writer's strike ending. Yes, I did. I read uh, or had some, saw some TikTok videos of some people involved who were writers who talked about what the strike involved and what what the settlements were. I think the writers ended up with about 40 or 45% of what they were asking for. Oh, I thought it was more than that. I mean, they basically got the studios to capitulate on just about everything having to do with AI. They got decent pay size bumps. They got at least marginal increases on staff sizes and guarantees on the amount of weeks employed. I mean, they got a lot of stuff and it was very friendly. I, they had reason to be excited. Now, I don't know if the writer's strike will be ultimately as successful or unsuccessful as the actor's strike, because I think that's obviously going to have a play. But, you know, I, at least a few things that they needed the writers to finish, such as, you know, editing and the final touches on a few shows can at least get back into production. And if you're into that sort of thing, we can get back to some of the news programs or the entertainment, the talk shows that sort of thing can start to come back. Because I already saw Stephen Colbert is going to be on next Monday, and last week tonight with John Oliver will already be back on Sunday. So we had the writer's strike. 
I know this is being published a week usually after we record it, so it ended officially this morning at 12.01 a.m. But you wonder, even though it doesn't seem like the AMPTP is really looking to negotiate yet with the actors, if this is at least a good sign that they're willing to come back to the table with more credibility on some of this stuff. Yeah. But I think the actors ultimately are going to hold out for a lot more than even what the writers were were originally striking over. I think they're really pissed. <laughs> yeah, okay. So we'll see what happens. But um, I think it'll change the industry to some extent. And I, I, think, I think Hollywood itself or the studios figured out that having come off the pandemic and just started to see momentum filling again, where people were starting to come back to the studio or to the theaters, I think they kind of realized they needed to do something or they were going to really harm themselves long term. And I'm just glad that the industry has capitulated to allow the industry to continue to exist. Like, in a way, some of this felt a little bit like they were going to eat their own tail. Yeah. But part of that has to do with the old models that at one time were successful Certain individuals, because companies were owned by short-term viewing stockholders, even though, you know, one of the more successful traders, brokers, I'm not exactly sure what to call them, is primarily on the backing of long-term stock development and holding, the Oracle of Omaha. You would think that some of them wouldn't be quite so short-term focused and that it would undo a lot of these industries that have successful business models in place. But unfortunately, they do because they have too many people that are looking to make the quick buck instead of making the right buck. And I know that I have been overly critical of the industry makers themselves instead of the labor. And I will probably continue. No, not probably. I will definitely continue to do so because I am usually, if not always, pro-labor but I thought they were really particularly in the wrong here for all of the decisions that they've made over the last several years. And I don't even think it's necessarily just like Warner's or Disney or whatever else. I know they were chief among the villains of this whole thing and will continue to be as long as the actors are still also on strike. But I think that obviously Netflix and Apple and Amazon and the rest of them have to actually act like they're wanting to be a participant or a partner in the process of making content for the industry. And up until this point, they wanted to be kind of outside of that. So this has finally kind of brought them around to realize the position that they actually are in. And it's probably a good thing for the overall health of the industry as a whole. Because obviously, as lovers of content, of new movies, of TV shows, etc., you and I want this industry to continue to survive and to thrive. And there are a lot of threats from outside that are coming for it. It would be nice if they kind of all got on the same page, and at least this is a step towards doing so. Well, and I think the other winner is the American people, not only because of the fact we'll have content, but most people do not realize what is the largest export the United States has. It's not cars. It's entertainment, music, television, movies. It's not entertainment. It's culture. It's the projection of our culture in the broad populace made most famous by a lot of our entertainment. 
Well, I'm talking about economics. I'm not talking about cultural. I mean, you can't ship culture and get payment for it necessarily. Sure you can. How? Well, entertainment is broadly associated with that, but our politics ships overseas. Okay, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about nuts and bolts. I'm talking about what we have for goods okay, and services. Okay, if you're talking a tactile object, then yes. no, of course. So and that's what I'm talking about. So I couldn't understand why more influencers, I can understand to some extent if, if the uh, Biden administration would have gotten involved, it would have been perceived as, yep, there they go again, in bed with Hollywood. Yeah, putting their thumb on the scale in a way that they probably can't hear, but that they've clearly tried to do with the UAW strike, which I find fascinating. Yes. yes. But I mean, Gavin Newsom didn't say a word. No, governor of California, the governor of California, the mayor of Los Angeles, nobody of any political repute tried to get involved to at least bring them to a negotiating table. And they just said, sort it out yourselves. But if you talk to anybody that just generally lives in the area, they were talking about the potential like devastating impacts of the state of California and the city of Los Angeles as a whole economically on the country for this being out of work from very much longer than it currently is. And we're still not even fully back to work. Yeah. So past lives then. I thought it was an excellent film and it was one that was so simple and so clean that it was surprising how good you could make a film without it really having a really heavy script, a lot of action you know, I mean, it It reminded me a lot of the simplicity that we got with some of these first time directorial debuts of people that were going places. So we want to talk Promising Young Woman. We want to talk Lady Bird. We want to talk Whiplash. Some of those from people that have gone on to be bigger name directors that they were stripped back. They were very small. They were probably not very long movies you know, a hundred to or 90 minutes to a hundred minutes total, but they had a simple concept and idea that you could buy into as a human being and understand, but they were just well-made movies. Yes. And this is a kind of film that a couple could easily go to watch in a theater or watch on a streaming on a night and enjoy it and not have to worry about too much or think about too much, or be, you know, you can have this film on with your kids around without any problem. And it was done in a way that was so simple that you're shocked why more films don't try to be this clean and clear and straightforward because it gives you an opportunity to really make a great film that's clearly in focus with the viewers. I think, unfortunately, it's it's not for lack of trying. It's that this type of movie is a little harder to pull off for certain directors, certain script writers, than I think we're probably giving it credit for. We're obviously highlighting a couple of examples out of thousands of movies that have been made over the last decade. And... These are only a handful that we can really pull out. At the same time, the financing is going to be very limited for these types of movies. We get very rare 
exceptions with like A24, which I think was the studio behind this film, and Annapurna. But even those studios, to an extent, still need the backing of some other films in order to get this made. Everything Everywhere All at Once became kind of a novel hit out of the middle of nowhere last year, but probably helped fund this type of movie. And all their horror film work that they make for relatively cheap, but they seem to draw people out and make quite a bit of money, that's also going to fund these types of films, which can be big swings and misses. Because with the artistic crowd, you're not always guaranteed that this is going to appeal to everybody in the same way that this is. But that's why I revel in when we do actually get something of this quality. Because it only comes around every couple of years, in my eyes at least. Yes. I mean, it was... I, I enjoyed the film tremendously. It will almost certainly get a Best Picture nod. It might be a little early for that yet, but given that there are going to be relatively few things to knock it out of the places right now, I think comfortably you would say if it starts today or if the nominations were today, I think it'll get a a Best Picture nomination. I don't think it has a chance of winning, but I think it's at least comfortably in a nomination place in a required 10 spots. But that's going to do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. You've got to learn to let go. Next week, for our 184th episode, we discuss the sci-fi thriller Gravity from 2013, celebrating its 10th anniversary, directed and written by Alfonso Cuaron, co-written with Jonas Cuaron, music by Stephen Price, starring Sandra Bullock and George Clooney. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in and are fun. You can also email the show at thenewronnydickensstudios.com or sign up for our newsletter. Find our new Facebook page on the Grace Movie of All Time podcast or find us on Instagram, X, or TikTok at the handle at Gmode Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM. 